So namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight's presentation is more of a, an experiment. It's an experiential travel in which I will make you understand some very deep dimensions of the tantric meditation. As you know, unlike many other forms of spirituality, the tantric spirituality cares very much also about what the Indian philosophy calls prakriti or the nature. There are many forms of spirituality which care about the nature, what is called the manifestation, the manifested part of the universe, the tip of the iceberg. They care about it only as means to a ladder to enlightenment. Like you can have a few footholds here, 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 there, and then you jump out of the manifestation, and then you are out of the manifestation, and that's the end of it. <coughs> the idea being that the spiritual accomplishment to them, at least in the first stage, is an accomplishment in which the manifested part of the universe has no role. It is like the very simplified vision in which we go from matter to spirit. We are material and we want to be spiritual. All of you are engrossed in matter. <coughs> you can deal not only with your physical body, but also with your energy body, with your emotions, with your mind, which are all levels of matter, of manifestation. But the idea is that when you go spiritual, you transcend the matter. That's a very radical way of some schools of spirituality, because they don't tell you the whole story. They tell you only a part of the story. And that part is for the last 5,000 lifetimes you have cultivated materialism, 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 materialism. Where is your spirit? Everybody who is in spirituality would say, I am a person endowed with an immortal spirit. Really, where is it? Can you feel it? Can you see it? You can move your fingers. Where is your spirit? What do you do with your spirit? Which means many people rightly point, the conclusion is wrong, but the premises are right, that of course the human being is totally aware or partly aware of its material universe, but the spiritual universe is not being cultivated. We do so many things on in a lifetime, and most of them serve our body, most of them serve our life force, most of them serve our astral body, our emotions, most of them serve our mind, and the spirit is none of those. So precisely the part which is supposed to be immortal and significant, even if you sharpen your intelligence or improve your memory, that doesn't touch the spirit. Therefore, there exists in spirituality a tendency to deny the matter and to favor the spirit because everybody else favors the matter and forgets about the spirit. However, the final answer to the problem of existence is obviously an answer which is balanced. 
because the existence is spirit and the matter. The matter is not a garbage or a nuisance. The matter is equally real as the spirit. And the matter is created with a view to the duality of spirit and matter. And that's why spirit and matter, which in the tantric tradition I'll call Shiva and Shakti, they are just like the two sides of one coin. You cannot have matter without spirit. You cannot have spirit without matter. Both of them are 50-50. They are equally important. Which simply says, in, for example, in the early forms of Buddhism, the goal is nirvana. Get out of samsara, which is the nature, the universe, the matter, and go to nirvana, which is pure spirit, purusha, brahman, and there you will be free. There is nothing, there is no space, no time, no limitation, no this and no that. On the other hand, Tibetan Buddhism, which has gone beyond the level of the Theravadin early Buddhist revelation, doesn't aim to nirvana. It aims to nirvana and samsara by the famous dictum which puzzles other Buddhist schools where they say ultimately nirvana is samsara and samsara is nirvana. That's exactly what the Kashmiri Shaivists say when they say Shiva is Shakti and Shakti is Shiva. The division between them is just a scholarly division to make possible the understanding of things, of the nature of things, but nobody can or should try to separate Shiva from Shakti, Nirvana from Samsara, spirit from matter. Those two are God together. Why am I saying this? Because in the moment when you put a lot of emphasis, 50% of your emphasis is on the Shakti aspect, then Shakti gets to be studied, understood. The tenet which makes the Tantric spirituality of India, of Tibet, and other types of Tantric spirituality, even the Taoism is, practically, is partly Tantric in its structure with its yin and yang together forming the Tao, the Absolute. The Tantric tradition is specific to the fact that it does not abandon the nature or the matter or the manifestation. On the contrary, the tantrics say exactly what quantum mechanics physicists discovered thousands of years later, that in the bosom of the matter there is spirit. The quantum mechanics revelation at the beginning of the 20th century was that by digging deeper and deeper, like what is the matter made of, of atoms? What are the atoms made of, of elementary particles, electrons, protons, and the rest? And what are the elementary particles made of? Eventually, quantum mechanics and the modern physics together with it reach to a point where the elementary particles disappear. You keep on splitting the matter, and the last components of the matter, such as, for example, even the electrons, not to speak about the sub-elementary particles, but just the elementary particles themselves, they are sometimes electromagnetic waves, sometimes they behave like bodies, like physical things. They suffer undetermination, like their position cannot be determined or calculated precisely. 
they manifest for physicists like a cloud of probabilities. An electron is not something which you can place in a place. It's in a fuzzy cloud somewhere with a certain probability. And what I'm trying to say here is quantum mechanics physicists, when they have gone at this level where the matter almost sinks into energy and the energy sinks into void, into nothingness, they have observed with surprise that at that level of finesse, if somebody looks, if a human being, a conscious person looks at a quantum mechanics experiment, the quantum mechanics experiment unfolds in a different way than if there is nobody in the room to look at it. Which means the crushing discovery was that actually physics is not physics. According to the classical physics, an apple falls down from a tree. Either you look at it or not, it just falls just the same. Well, guess what? The electrons are not like that. The electrons, if you or I look at them, they start behaving in a different way than if we weren't present there and we wouldn't look at them, which is a total puzzle because it means the laws of physics interact with my presence, with just my awareness. I'm not poking my finger into the experience. I'm just watching it. And the fact that I'm watching it, in a very discreet way, but I'm watching it, it changes the nature of the experiment. This automatically proves that although scientifically we do not have a proper definition of what consciousness is, but it is a fact demonst demonstrable and demonstrated by quantum mechanics like 70 years ago and more, that consciousness influences matter. That matter reacts to awareness or non-awareness. This principle basically says that Shiva and Shakti touch each other. In the old spiritualities, it was claimed that spirit and matter are like oil and water. They stay separate. Matter does whatever it does, and then when you escape from matter, you go to the world of spirit, and then you are isolated in a pristine way. And whatever matter does, it will never affect you. That's not true. Matter affects spirit, and spirit affects matter. That's why in the tantric tradition, there is a dance of Shiva and Shakti. They interact, those two, the father and the mother of the universe. The male consciousness and the female matter or nature, they dance with each other. They are not indifferent to each other or unresponsive to each other. In most spiritualities, this spirit is dead because it kind of doesn't interact with matter. In Indian Vedanta, in early Buddhism and others, this samsara, this Brahman, is a transcendent consciousness which doesn't do anything to matter. Matter is like outside of the spirit, and it has a sort of phantasmagoric, half-unreal, semi-independent existence of its own, and all you can do as a spiritual seeker is to jump out of matter and to run into the bosom of spirit. Matter sucks 
and spirit rocks. That's the primitive equation of it. Tantra disagrees bitterly with this and says matter and spirit are equally divine and they represent 50% of the game, each one of them. That is why the tantric tradition and all the byproducts of it, they studied matter because they say exactly what the quantum mechanics discovered thousands of years later. They say if you look at your body, at matter, at the universe and meditate on it and try to understand what it is made of and what are the real rules and laws of it, in the moment when you dig deep enough, you discover spirit. Like the underlying reality of matter is spirit. If you go too much in one of the sides of your coin, you'll drill a hole and find yourself on the other side of the coin, on the other facet of that coin. They are connected. That's why the tantric tradition of all sorts advises spiritual practitioners, as we do in Agama here, not to deny the material part of reality, but to understand it, study it, and use it. The matter, the material universe, is here for your benefit. By interacting with the material universe, you can forget who you are and where do you come from and why you are here and then plunge like the, a moth in the flame of a candle, like the Tibetan yogis say. You can get lost in the Fata Morgana, in the matrix of this world and start building Eiffel Towers and doing stupid things with your life just because at some point building a 300 metallic tower sounds somehow important or meaningful. And of course, it's not relevant from the standpoint of the higher consciousness. These are people who got lost in the labyrinth and they live their lives doing collateral things. And at the same time, there is the possibility to be in the world and to use the world and the body and the physical reality to discover your way, to discover the truth. Your body can be a source of animalization and subhumanization of the human being. You can just live your life like an animal, just serving your body all the time, becoming a slave of your flesh. And your body can become an amazing source of enlightenment when you put yourself in a meditation position like Buddha, or when you do a headstand, you use the same body which a drunk is serving by pouring alcohol into it non-stop, or in which other people serve by simply satisfying their neurotransmitters and their vices or their addictions. And what I'm trying to say here is the same body. It depends how you use it. The, the yogis did not run from the body. The yogis said, since we have a body, how can we use it to find the truth? Therefore, Tantra is very proactive 
into using the manifestation. And I made all this long interaction for you to understand that it's very much a matter of spirit and matter, as the very title of this lecture contains at some point, and the relationship between them. But it is also about the fact that that's why in the tantric tradition, the material things are being studied and used. If, for example, you do Theravadic Buddhism or Vedanta, you need no astrology because the astrology can never define something which pertains to the spirit. The astrology defines only material influences. Of course, material means also energy, destiny, as subtle as it gets, but still material in the world of Prakriti. Therefore, people who are not interested in Prakriti they say, why should I study astrology? The planets and the stars are just Maya, like the rest of this universe. Why would I want to spend three years of my life understanding the laws of this Maya when I'm trying to go beyond Maya? To this, the tantrics answer, wrong answer. We don't try to go beyond Maya. We try to go through the Maya. Maya is God. In Tantra, Maya is not the enemy. Maya is the cosmic power, Bhuvaneshwari, that we call upon tonight, <coughs> together with Kali and the other forces of the universe, to clarify our understanding about space, time, and how can we zoom into space, time, matter, energy, and see the spirit. Where is the spirit in all this? I hope that by the end of this lecture, you will have a glimpse of it. That is why it is very important for me to explain that the vision that you are going to acquire with this lecture is a vision which is tantric, because studying the dimensions of space and time, their, their connection with the levels of consciousness, with the energy, with the chakras, and all this is not done in any other form of spirituality because other forms of spirituality are not interested in space, time, body, chakras, and other things. They are interested in going beyond them altogether, while the tantric tradition is a holistic tradition which says, do, do not deny your roots. Your roots are equally important. Even Buddha, when he reaches nirvana, he actually touches the earth. Without touching the earth, he cannot realize who he is and where he comes from. He gets lost in the meditation, and the meditation reaches to samadhi, but he needs to touch the earth like to make the synthesis. That's why even the message of the Buddha in this way, it's a tantric message. This touching of the earth simply says that the earth has an importance in the process of enlightenment. It's not just an obstacle or a maya, some phantasmagoric hypnosis, which is preventing you from reaching spirit. This being said, We look into the space and time and the connection with the spirit precisely because we make a tantric understanding 
the borderline between matter and spirit is the borderline between Ajna Chakra and Sahasrara. So matter ends at the top end of Ajna and spirit is the kingdom of the crown chakra. I'm simplifying things a little bit there. But what I'm trying to come to is the fact that studying space and time is like studying a ladder of understanding. Because this understanding is deep and it is what the tantric gurus have reached through meditation, it is requiring an altered state of consciousness, a higher state of consciousness. It would be simple for me to just draw a few diagrams and to simply tell you, well, the tantric tradition says so and so, the tantrics discovered these laws of space and time or these things, and it's up to you to sooner or later see it in your own meditation or understand it, and then you know, when you reach there, you will know that you have walked in the footsteps of the predecessors. However, for this lecture not to be an entire theoretical expose, just a presentation which I could write a brochure about, and because all of you here are more or less pupils of the school and you are practicing and you are knowledgeable about concentration of the mind, chakras, levels of consciousness, and that. Every time when I do this consciousness, I'm trying to drag people along with me. To make it more easy for you, I recommend it, and some of you did it, that you could fast today because fasting is lightening up the energy. It is activating a bit the Vishuddha chakra. Also that you prepare by working on Vishuddha Chakra and Agnya Chakra. Those of you who didn't do it will probably be carried on in the field of energy produced by the rest. And of course I will support all of you at the same time. So that was the reason because we want to go somewhere with the mind. However for this to happen I need to put you into a special state of mind. And that is why I will push a little bit on your energy in the beginning. But I want to preserve this understanding. And that is why it's not possible to constantly do a meditation, then make some presentation, then see that you start scratching your heads and getting out of it, and then stopping again and doing some more meditation. That is why I will have to keep you in this state of mind constantly. For you, this simply means that once we go into a state of mind of absorption at the level of Vishuddha or Ajna, I will use a music on Ajna Chakra for all those of you who can. We have people in here that have special tapas which doesn't allow them to go there, but they can use their own insight. They are knowledgeable of yoga and they know other doorways to enter into that higher state of consciousness. So I'm going to start now in a few moments with meditating a little bit on the third eye. In this meditation, as I said, I'm going to push a bit on your energy, and this definitely will make that in five, six, seven minutes, let's see how long it takes there about usually, you will start moving into a interiorized 
state of mind in which Ajna Chakra becomes significantly more present. Then, being in that state for five, five, six, seven minutes, I will interrupt the meditation and I will start giving explanations. Your task is to try to stay as much into that state, which means what do people do to get out of a spiritual state, like to break a spell? Well, if you eat something, then the digestion brings you down. If you make sudden physical movements, it's exactly like you do a relaxation, and when you are in the middle of the yoga relaxation, you don't start moving chaotically. It spoils immediately. There is a certain slowness which allows you to stay into that state. You try to keep the eyes closed, but of course, since I'm going to do some graphic representations on the board here, which you need to see from time to time, you can open the eyes, even if it's a little bit of a half opening of the eyes, like Buddha type of eyes, like being a little bit like it's a bit of a dream. It's a little bit like daydreaming, being in that state, staying in that state, and not making, like not looking at your wristwatch or at the clock on the wall, not get making any jerky movements, not standing up to go to the restroom, not answering your telephone. Of course, I hope all your mobile telephones are switched off because a beeping device would produce a real unpleasant uh, reaction, not only to you, but to those around you. So please be considerate. And thus, staying in this state, following, focusing on Ajna Chakra or Vishuddha Chakra or both or whatever is uh, that you are doing, but of course to those of you who are not having a special tapas or a special thing, I recommend keep focusing on Ajna Chakra. And thus, I'm going to open for you a door. From experience, it is known that people often remember the intellectual part of this, because I have made this lecture slightly humoristic here and there by using some very simplified images such as the four-dimensional sausage and other such weird metaphors and then you will remember those tomorrow but as many people realize also some of you especially those of you that in the daily life still don't have a powerful activation of Ajna Chakra and Vishuddha Chakra might have a certain degree of fallout, like a forgetfulness. It is possible that tomorrow you won't really remember how did I do it, like how did we move from this to that, and what was exactly the, how, like the conclusion is clear, but still to get there. That's because I am supplementing, especially for those of you who are beginners, and I am taking you somewhere into a state of mind, which is not yet specific to you. I just am doing this because in this way I'm opening a door towards the, mar the marvelous, the wonderful universe of meditation and showing you what some of the great masters of yore had discovered in understanding the concepts of space and time and how they relate actually with the spirituality, with the spiritual practice, with our life, what is relevant, 
how the understanding of space and time leads us to spirit. Actually, behind space and time, there is just oneness, and you will be able to see that. So, this being said, once we go into the meditation and when we come out of it, try to keep your peace of mind. This is not about argumentative mind. You can do your own studies. There is a lot of bibliography where you can study some elementary physics about this. I'm going to use very, very slight formalism in physics and mathematics. I will not use anything super advanced such as mathematical equations and stuff like this so that the understanding can be rather intuitive as it was for the yogis in meditation because the yogis did not understand these things by studying mathematics and physics. They understood them through insight. Actually, Albert Einstein himself, when he realized the idea of relativity in general and particular restricted relativity, he realized it by years of visualization, and he had no skill in mathematics and physics, especially, which contradicted all the research which had been done previously, just relying on laboratories and mathematical calculations. Thus, we will now uh, meditate for a few minutes on Ajna Chakra, and when I stop, I will make a few introductory ideas. I will warm up for 5-10 minutes with some things about the energy, the dance of Shiva and Shakti consciousness and matter, and then I will start analyzing, describing the space and time as perceived in meditation, and where that idea leads, to what sort of image of the universe it leads. So please assume a sitting relaxed position. It's switched off somehow. Just to press probably longer. visualization can help 
more so you can those of you who have a feeling of this mental vision there visualize like there is a tunnel a dark tunnel in front of your third eye and start visualizing as you are moving flying in the through that tunnel which goes between stars and galaxies which is like a spiraling tunnel spiraling both clockwise and counterclockwise like two superimposed spirals and you are going forward to the end of the tunnel 
and remaining in this state of mind, in this state of consciousness. I'm now bringing forth first some of the initial ideas that according to the understanding of the tantric meditators we live in a world made of energy of multiple types of energy in which the fundamental difference is the frequency of vibration going higher and higher you have the frequency of the energy becoming higher and higher Everything, starting from the physical elements and finishing with the mind itself, is made of energy. It's true that for the tantrics and for the yogis in general, this has been a practical statement, like It is not enough to understand theoretically the existence of energy, but to experiment it. Thus, in Tantric Yoga, as you go deeper and deeper into the knowledge, you see that the physical body is made of energy, and by working on certain chakras with different energies, there can be even changes of a physical nature, which are used for many healing processes and others. Then we are looking into the aspect of the life force, vitality, life energy, which is clearly a vibrant force of nature. We are looking at the fact that even the emotions, the emotional body is made of energy and the predominance of certain energies make you typically have certain emotions and the absence of certain energies makes you in makes one incapable to experience for the time being certain emotions and therefore that it is possible to influence the emotional body of the human being by energy by understanding it as energy and by working on it as it is an energy, then the emotions are not becoming, are no longer some sacro, sacred, sacrosanct thing, which some people like paying, giving them the importance, the exaggerate importance, which is given to them. But on the contrary, we understand that the emotions and the thoughts and many of the actions of the mind depend very much on the energy in which we are, on the resonance which we have in our chakras. We understand that the very functioning of the mind and the contents of the mind, the ideas and the mental environment in which we live is also determined by energy. We understand that if we go to the level of the causal body, even many of the spiritual aspects of life, such as the karma and many, many other things, are actually still forms of energy, and we can interact with them in energy-based ways. Again, while modern physics would agree with many of those, 
The difference is that the yogis have studied these things practically. They wanted to obtain practical applications that they can use in daily life. And thus, the first element is this understanding that everything is energy of one form or another. Even when we talk about space, time, manifestation, the universe from the bottom of the universe to the top of the universe is just an ocean of energy stratified according to its frequencies of vibration, according to its typologies and all that. The next idea is that this energy is not an inert energy separated from the consciousness, but it's like in a mirror, there is a mirroring, there is a dance, there is a bridge between the two, there is a union between the two, and actually consciousness influences energy, and energy itself can influence consciousness, and thus we start understanding many things why in spirituality a basic fundamental energy like Kundalini in Tantric Yoga is the one which regulates the levels of consciousness and eventually produces even the spiritual opening, the spiritual realization. That's precisely the dance between spirit and energy. There are many, many brilliant ideas in this understanding, of course, we are not going into the small scientific things like what kind of energy, how does it vibrate, what is the difference between scalar waves and other waves, is it all electromagnetic, which are the forms of energy which rule this universe, is there, what is gravitation or anti-gravitation, what is the energy that enlivens the mind, both the human mind and the cosmic mind? What makes possible instantaneous, faster-than-light interaction or telepathy or other and other mental operations? Thus, this is a field which is very fertile and open-minded scientists, they try to rejoin the spiritual research, trying to create bridges and to see in which way the human beings can tap these resources, which are ours, having the seven chakras, having a mind, having all the energies potentially available, surely all the doors of this universe can be open for people endowed with consciousness, for the sentient beings that we are supposed to be. But now going into the angle of space and time, part of this warp, Tantra, the very name Tantra means warp, like the warp on the loom, that in every fabric, in every textile, there is an invisible network, a warp, which was primarily weaved on a loom. And that warp is what holds the whole thing together. It's the web which makes everything interconnected with everything. In this web-like reality, in which everything is holographic, the part is in the whole and the whole is in the part, we try to understand the role of space and time, which are pretty elementary 
measures in physics, in the study of reality, and I'm going to give you a few hints about those. I will study from, I will start, of course, with the completely accepted mathematical and physical models of that by drawing a few simple diagrams so you can warm up your mind to the understanding simply through geometry, elementary things, again, nothing complicated, and so that you can start having a vision of what is the concatenation, the dovetailing of these concepts and how do they move along with the chakras. The most simple reality geometrically is defined in mathematics as a dot. A dot which of course we can always represent somewhere. Of course the representation of a dot here on the board or on any piece of paper is just a symbol because mathematically a dot is something which has zero height, zero breadth, zero length, and therefore it's infinitely small. What we call in mathematics a dot is smaller than an, than an atom, is smaller than an electron, it is smaller than anything there is, it is actually infinitely small, it is down to zero. Because of this, then you would say, actually, a dot is only an abstract concept. It does not even exist in this world. That is why the dot itself became the symbol of the highest. The dot is not of this world. The dot in Sanskrit is called by the word bindu, and bindu is a word which, among other meanings, it symbolizes the divine consciousness. The divine consciousness in Sahasrara is a bindu. When you look in the center of all these geometrical beautiful diagrams that the tantrics use for meditation, in the middle of some of them there is a dot, a tiny dot. That dot is the bindu. It's the symbol of the transcendent of that something which cannot be drawn properly represented because it's something out of this world, it's something transcendent. That's why Bindu represents like zero and everything. It is, the, it is representing the extremes of the scale. And thus Bindu is not really a geometrical construction. It's more like the root of everything. The Vivarta tradition in the Vedantic spirituality of India says that the whole universe is made just by one bindu, exactly as in the old television screens, what was creating the image on the television screen was just a dot of light, and that dot would move along 500 and something horizontal lines, and as it moved according to the line, especially in the black and white television, which was more simple to understand, that dot becomes more luminous or more dark. So it's kind of creating a pattern, and then it's coming to the second line and drawing it very quickly, and the third, and it can draw 500 and something lines in less than a 25th of a second, because it can go through the screen 25 times drawing the whole screen in just one second. So it's just one dot which moves like there are lots of dots on a television screen which move, at least 
now they don't move on the liquid crystal screens but in the old televisions it was a very very clear point it's just a dot that moves with an incredible speed and draws an image exactly in the same way the Vedantins hundreds of years before the appearance of the television they said it's not only the television screen the whole universe 3d is just made by one dot which moves with an infinite speed again and again and again and again so this is like a television image and the author of it is just one dot that dot being God the spirit Atman Paramatman the Shiva consciousness and so many other names have been given to this one to this oneness to this reality which generates everything now when we go into geometry we start having the things which manifest in the world and the most simple action of a dot is when the dot moves from the initial point to another point from point A to point B as we could say and the dot moving on this basically it means that if you would have a stroboscopic light and if you kind of flash 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 and catch it this dot, dot is actually a lot of dots which move along this line and the dot moving continuously at if you want an infinite speed or not it creates the appearance of a line the the segment a to b is called a line in geometry and this represents one dimension a line is a one-dimensional reality like it has no breadth it has no height it has only one dimension length it is infinitely thin from all the sides it's like a thread but an infinitely thin thread and therefore it has only one dimension this is the first dimension of the universe and we make an experiment which will serve us later just to form your way of thinking if this line is cut with like a blade with like a scissor with like a knife when the moment when you cut this line at the point of intersection between the blade and the line you will find the line the dot itself if this is the line and I cut it here what do I see when I look in the line from here if I look from here into it it's just the good old dot that has created the line so when I cut a one-dimensional reality I get to a zero dimension reality the dot sec creating a section gets me back with one dimension that's basically the mathematical rule here so that's pretty simple to understand uh, according to the yogis and you will see later how that came to be I'm anticipating this linear reality is related to Muladhara chakra the first chakra corresponds to the first dimension of space to a one-dimensional existence this is the mechanical realm it is like the Newtonian mechanics there is absolutely no derivation from this many yogis have compared this with the existence of the very simple forms of life which have a very dull consciousness and because of this they cannot take a decision like the life of an amoeba or of a bacteria or something and that simply means a linear existence there is no variation of any kind 
it's predictable mathematically almost what is going to happen there if we would have a thorough understanding of the whole thing. The next level is when this line, which now I'm putting across, this line which we called AB, when this line starts moving across of itself, then it creates a lot of lines and it starts describing a sheet, a plane sheet. Let's say it goes from A to B to A prime and B prime. And it creates thus a surface, exactly like a sheet. This surface is what is called a B-dimensional reality. Physicists often illustrated with the shadows on a wall. When you have a shadow on a wall, it does have no thickness. You see the shadow on the wall. We could have a shadow person even here drawn, but you don't. It has no thickness. It's infinitely thin. It's just a B-dimensional reality. And the B-dimensional reality, if you take a knife and you cut it with a knife through it, what you discover when you cut it at the intersection is precisely the line which moving across had generated that surface. So when you section a B-dimensional reality, you get a one-dimensional section, a line. You always get one dimension less. The B-dimensional reality has been compared by the yogis with Svadhisthana Chakra. There is even one author who wrote a critical book against the Svadhisthanistic world in which we live, which he called very significantly Flatland. That on Svadhisthana, as much as people try to be colorful and original, actually there exists a flatness. The consciousness of Svadhisthana, although trying to be buoyant and full of fantasy and all those things which exist on Svadhisthana, nevertheless it has something essentially flat. There is no verticality to it. No verticality means like no spine, no standing isolated from the crowd. It is like the surface of the water, which is a flat land. It means nobody is above anybody. There are even social philosophies which simply preach, like communism and others, which preached an enforced equality between everybody. Like you don't make a difference between an oligophren and an Albert Einstein or between a murderer and a Buddha and all that stuff, which is unrealistic because the universe is not created that way. And there is a difference between lions and gazelles in this nature in which we live. And uh, this flat land, therefore, corresponds to Svadhisthana again. And um, there are many, many similitudes psychologically in which people sometimes feel like their life, their existence has something flat and boring. While on the contrary, going further, it creates a volume it creates a further development. Now, the next level in geometry is to go to the 3D, which is the world in which we live, which says very much about our perception. You will see it's not quite as simple. So if I take this sheet now, there's this sheet, A, B, A, prime, B prime, the letters are not important. 
And if I start moving this sheet across itself, then this sheet moving in a myriad of positions in this direction starts creating a volume. So it moves from the initial position to the final position, let's say here. And it creates a volume, like a cube, in which basically there is a movement from this to this. We have generated with a b-dimensional surface a three-dimensional body, a volume, like a cube or something similar. So this is the three-dimensional reality. And of course, by following the same exercise of the mind, if we use a knife and we cut this, then at the intersection between the knife and this, we'll find precisely the surface, the sheet, which moved across exactly as you'd cut a bread, a square bread, and you cut it, and when you look at it, it's square, right? The cut, the section itself, is square. So, again, when we cut a three-dimensional object, we find a b-dimensional reality as the section of that. The three-dimensional reality is related in yoga with the Manipura chakra, which makes that Manipura chakra is already visual. For example, on Svadhisthana chakra, people like to dress in black and white, like shadow and light. While, for example, in Manipura chakra, there is a lot of color. It's the love of colors and shapes and geometry. People that have a very developed Manipura chakra, they usually have a 3D vision, very good and they make good engineers or technicians or designers or architects or because they can feel the space of it. <clears throat> and it would be related to Manipura Chakra. We know that humanity is somewhere between Svadhisthana and Manipura on its average, and some yogis have called the attention on this. They have said, everybody says that we live in a three-dimensional world, but if you look carefully around yourselves, you are going to see that that's kind of partial because the third dimension is not completely conquered. You can easily move 1,000 kilometers in that direction and you can easily move 1,000 kilometers in that direction. But if you want to move 1,000 kilometers in that direction, which would be the third, it's difficult. If you want to move 1,000 kilometers in that direction, it's also very difficult. It takes a huge energy and a huge investment of technology and other things. So we haven't really conquered the third dimension 100%. We can go 10 kilometers up and 10 kilometers down. That's about how much we can go. Thus, and again, with satellites and others a bit more, but that's not accessible to everyone. So what I'm trying to say is there are many yogis who say we are as level of consciousness on this planet somewhere between two and three. We are almost fully three-dimensional people. <coughs> it is known in psychology by using computer-generated images, tests, computer game like puzzles and others, that many people do not really have a 3D vision. Many people look upon reality as it is still flat, and some people don't have the feeling of up and down very well developed. Like this third dimension is almost there, 
for some people more than for the others. <coughs> Thus, the third dimension gives the fullness of the space. And with this, we can, we, you can define any object in our galaxy or wherever in the universe. A sun, a star is like a globe of hydrogen oozing with energy and all that. It's a 3D object. With 3D, you can describe everything which exists in this universe. Beyond that, there comes the 4D, which already eludes the perception of many people. It's above the level of consciousness of many people because 4D means now we have a 3D. Can you catch until here? Now there comes a 3D object like this cube which I had here. And this 3D object, you have to move it across. But what to move it across? Because both this and this and that, they are all of them covered. What means across? You cannot, there is no direction in space where you can move it like this. So you have to move it in time. The space, the, the environment, the milieu in which the next movement occurs is a movement in time. The theory of relativity, having shown that time and space are like a product of each other, they are interrelated mathematically and conceptually. So like space is another sort of time and time is another sort of space, if you want to put it like this. Which simply says, we have this cube and we just symbolically, I cannot draw it, it's not possible to draw realistically, only symbolically, we consider that this cube moves, moves in a certain direction, but that direction is time. There is a time flow from point A to point B, there is a time flow, let's say 10 seconds or something. And this cube moves in time exactly like that. Like it browses, imagine this cube in motion. That it goes on different positions more and more and more and more. And as it moves in time, it describes like a loaf of bread, like a square bread loaf. Or what we later are going to call a sausage. And in the final position, of course, it reaches its final condition. It's a cube here, it's a cube here. And here, imagine like you have a photo with the technology of multiple exposure, like you have a stroboscopic multiple expo exposure thing, exactly as you'd film an athlete in the Olympic Games moving his arms, and that arm is photoed 500 times, and you have 500 images superimposed in a fuzzy, foggy way over each other, describing a movement, a trajectory. That's how a three-dimensional object can be described as moving in time. It exists in time, <coughs> which simply says this is like the four-dimensional existence of an object. It is a pitiful condition that many New Age people, although enthusiastic spiritually, they don't have any understanding of what these things mean. 
and they say we are four-dimensional beings, we finished with the three dimensions, from the fourth dimension there will come some aliens from the Pleiades and save us, not from the fourth, that's boring, that was ten years ago, now you have to you have to up the stakes a little bit because then you are not original. From the fifth dimension, they will come, but they have not a clue of what they are talking about. The fourth dimension is clearly defined in physics. And, it, and that's the unfortunate thing, that when some people enthusiastically want to come with some spiritual things, they use words which make no sense in science and technology. And the scientists and the engineers and all the rational people, they start rolling on the floor with laughter and saying these people are, you know, they should be put in a house and locked, you know, because they are a danger to themselves eventually. Like, you have to understand the fourth dimension is even, this is easy to understand still. It represents physical objects flowing in time, preserving their integrity. By this slicing experiment, if I'm cutting this cube, this four-dimensional cube, if I'm slicing it, what I find in the slicing is not a slice like in the bread. It's the cube. I find the cube itself at that moment in time. It's like a snapshot photo during this movement. So the intersection, this four-dimensional cube, is exactly like the etheric body in the human, that it goes through the flesh. This cube intersects or interspheres with itself. It is a very strange kind of space in which things can coexist and there is a difference only in time. That is why spiritualists often say that there is energy, there are spirits, they can be right here but they can coexist in the same space and move because they are in a different dimension. They occupy a different dimension and thus the space is not important anymore. They can occupy the same space, but what differs is time. What I drew here is basically the existence of a cube, of a physical cube, which was like materialized by a scientific desire device or by some almighty yogi who made it appear, ping, it appeared here. Then it stays in front of your eyes for 10 seconds. Of course, it doesn't move. It moves in time. Physically, it just stays there. So it exists for 10 seconds. And then after 10 seconds, it is dematerialized. Poof. It's taken back. Now let's go to an exercise. This is still on the simple side of things. This is called the four-dimensional continuum. Continuum. It's called continuum because it's like matter exists through matter. It occupies the same volume. It doesn't fight with itself. It doesn't knock with itself. This four-dimensional continuum, therefore, describes like trails. Everything which exists in this world can be in four dimensions presented like a trail. This is in the case of a cube that it looks like this, but if you will put a human being, it will have a much different shape. I'm not a very good drawer, but if this would be a human being primitively represented, and this is a human being at the moment zero, and here is 10 seconds. We are going to study the existence of somebody for 10 seconds. And then there, in time, as time passes, there are like 
stroboscopic images as we go in time until we find the first last condition of it and this image which goes like this is called sometimes by scientists I did not invent this name it is called a sausage it's a four-dimensional sausage it's a space-time four-dimensional continuum in which this would be the existence of our friend Walter from moment zero to moment ten let's suppose that Walter is materialized like in Star Trek he's beamed right here in the middle of the room so Walter beams pop he appears for 10 seconds he stays doesn't move a single atom of his body after 10 seconds poof he's beamed back this is the 10 second existence the short sausage of four dimensional existence of Walter in time 10 seconds now of course that's a very idealistic image we are working in mathematical idealism because nobody stays without moving on the contrary in this nature everything moves first of all the electrons and the atoms move themselves so I'm going to stay with the fourth dimension a little bit more because here we are crossing a bridge slowly slowly and time is of a more subtle nature so let us now suppose that I want to draw Walter being materialized in the room and about five seconds in the process Walter makes a small sidestep that's all of course I'm ignoring the movement of the atoms and of the breath and of the blood in the veins and so on because that makes the image too complicated so here is Walter being materialized at the moment zero and as the time passes and there are all these stroboscopic Walters at every fraction of a second at every moment of time at some point at the middle of the interval Walter moves towards his right and the whole sausage gets bent like in the end of the process at 10 seconds this sausage now you can realize human beings in their life they grow they decrease they move not only a little sidestep to the left and to the right they run they take airplanes they bend over they move back and forth they do a so this sausage in reality is way 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 more complicated and then of course you don't have just one Walter you have six billion Walters around here and all that so of course the image of the world is a very very complex one let us take for example the image of an imaginary Walter for a lifetime this Walter is a sort of a Truman from the Truman show he is put in a cruel experiment where as a baby being born he stands up already and he cannot move from that place anywhere and he just is kept there for 70 years or 80 years here we have little baby Walter being born and as the years pass he is becoming a teenager and then he is becoming an adult and it's just a lot of Walters along the path and then Walter stays at adult age somewhere around the age of 40 or 50 he starts slightly decreasing in stature as old age produces it and somewhere out here is Walter at the age of 80 
when he finally passes away. This sausage, this is the four-dimensional existence of Walter in time. It's like the life of Walter. It's my life, it's your life, with the difference that our sausage is not as quiet as this, but it is agitated, much more complex, due to our movement in the three dimensions of this world constantly. This existence in four dimensions is related by the yogis to the heart chakra. The fourth level of consciousness is the heart chakra. It is not a coincidence that the heart chakra is related to the influence of Kali, which the tantrics call the influence of time. It is not a coincidence that on Anahata chakra we have the 12 astrological signs. Anahata chakra has 12 spokes. Like that, because the zodiac is like the clock of the universe, is the horology of the universe. So Anahata Chakra introduces us to time, but to a very simple time, again, linear time. Time which goes from the past to the future, and it just the clock is ticking. We just go from the, it just goes along one line, that's at least what we can perceive out of it. This is the four-dimensional, and the level of consciousness of Anahata brings us there. I encountered gurus who claim that when the consciousness of Anahata is reached, you are not sensitive so much more to astrological influences, to planetary influences, to Svara Yoga. You are not so sensitive anymore to biorhythm and other such things. Because in a certain way there appears a certain mobility on the time. Of course, the level of consciousness on Anahata is an ideal for most people. It doesn't happen so easily. And that is why, of course, we are talking about a lot of ifs in this situation. Now, to be able to understand what comes next... You have to understand that all these stroboscopic things, all these movements, either in the three dimensions of space or in this dimension, the fourth of time, they mean, like I mean, very, very small. You have to think microscopically and mathematically even beyond that. This is how Isaac Newton actually managed to describe dynamic processes in the law of gravitation in the orbits of the planets and others. By, invented, by inventing what is called today in mathematics calculus, which is a short for differential and integral calculus, the forms of it, because he started by analyzing what is producing if you reduce the transformations between two states infinitesimally. In science, in mathematics, there is a concept which is called infinitesimal or infinitesimal calculus even, which means you... Think about the slightest, slightest, slightest unit possible. Exactly as the idea which is taken in quantum mechanics under the word quanta. That's what quantum or quanta are. Quantum is the smallest unit the, the energy can assume. You cannot go below a quantum, a quantum of energy. The energy only moves in quanta, in a whole number of quanta. So quantum by quantum. So what I'm saying here is 
just for the formulation. This is not something which you have to bother mathematically. It's only for the formulation to allow me to express in a language which you can understand. Therefore, the difference between these slides, because it's like a slideshow, it's a 3D slideshow, the difference between two such moments, one moment and the next, is called in differential calculus where Isaac Newton started from. It's called by the letters DT. It actually was originally called by with the delta of the Greeks, so it was called delta T. But for use, many people have taken the Latin it. So DT. And you have also D, the same D can be used for space, such as DX, DY, DZ, as the three dimensions of space. And from the combination of this, there results all the intricacy of what is called differential calculus and all that. But the concept DX, DY, DZ, and DT, it means that something is infinitely close and from one slide to the next if I move my arm and I take flash flash just two moments the smallest the difference between them is like smaller than an atom's bread it is infinitesimal it is so small that you can consider it pretty much the same from it's a good approximation this concept, don't think that is invented by uh, Newton. Newton created mathematics of it. This concept of the smallest quantum of time exists in the Vedic culture. A few thousand years ago, it was written. There is a Vedic word called kshana, and kshana means the smallest unit of time, and it is described something like 10 at the minus 24th or something of a second. Nobody understands today who the heck played with numbers like this in a time where there were not even wristwatches were making mention of some units of time which are smaller than the time necessary for an elementary particle to move to one quantum level to the next. It's completely flabbergasting today, people studying Vedic lore, who needed to invent the kshana and for which practical purpose and all that. It's because conceptually, the people who did those meditations, they needed to understand this elementary quantum thing that the whole universe moves step by step, exactly like a slideshow. Ultimately, realize that even a cinematographic movie and a television image are static. They are just a very quick sequence of slides which your eye transforms into motion, and then you see people moving, laughing, doing, but actually, technically speaking, it's a slideshow, a very fast and skillful slideshow. The yogis have said long time before this technology has come to be that it's the same with the universe. The universe is a slideshow, and when we move, it's stroboscopic, only that the frequency of it is so gigantic that there is no way for us to perceive it with any technical instrument. <coughs> it's something which happens at such a speed that it surpasses the organs of perception, exactly like the story with the bindu, which moves so quickly and draws the universe every instant, but we cannot realize that because the speed of it is like infinite. Why did I mention this? 
because then the yogis discovered that if you want to go higher is time just a line but the line is unreal when we drew the dot moving from point A to point B this line is infinitely thin it cannot exist exactly as the bindu cannot exist in this world <coughs> one line it's like a thread nobody can have a thread which is infinitely thin because then it disappears so a mathematical line it's still an abstraction and then the tantrics have realized why should the time why should space be three-dimensional like a corpus a body a 3d thing and time should be monodimensional it makes no sense because in this world there doesn't exist anything monodimensional and therefore the the time itself must be three-dimensional and if it's three-dimensional then the idea is if time flows like this and this is the sausage of my life and of your life then what is this way what is this way we never explore except the, dis the duration which goes from past to future but actually time is like a milieu is like a volume it's everywhere therefore time cannot just move like this there is time sideways we move forward but there is something sideways in all directions both later laterally and vertically <coughs> sideways all around and therefore there appeared the concept then that if you want to go to the fifth dimension which of course will correspond to Vishuddha chakra and that's where all the time paradoxes and all the time understanding really breaks loose then there exists a parallel time and we take one of these dimensions and that simply says there is a parallel sausage it's not a one sausage there are two sausages imagine these sausages like logs in a stack and you have one log and near it you have another log but the, imagine those logs so close to each other that they actually cross over each other they go into the flesh of each other and the distance between those two logs it's like a double exposure in photography it's just a small glitch they are identical but slightly slightly the difference between these two logs is exactly this dt but this way not this way or that way laterally there is a lateral reality this is what opens the door to a new understanding because if i'm having a lateral sausage a sausage i hope you realize it means me you or the whole humanity the planet the solar system everything can be described as a 3d object which runs like this through time then there it means that if there is a reality describable as a sausage near it there is a reality which is dt infinitesimally different from it it's just one atom's breadth different from this one let's take it in a small scale like if there is here a reality in which I am sitting here I am what I am physically and all that there is a reality parallel to this one which I can't see physically because it's separated in time it's on another timeline very 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 little different and this reality in this reality my body 
is shorter or longer, one atom's breadth worth. That's the whole difference between this sausage and this sausage. Just a tiny difference, exactly as when Walter was growing. What's the difference in the body of Walter between this moment and the next moment? How much does a child grow in a fraction of a second? Infinitesimally, less than a breadth of an atom. Something which doesn't even worth mentioning. Therefore, it's the same when you go laterally. Only that laterally, it's simply a new version of me, of you, and a new version of the events. Like I have a universe aside, which in which I'm shorter or long, infinitesimally. So basically, everybody would say those two are identical as far as the eye can go. But it can be different not only in terms of objects, it can be different in terms of the process. For example, let's imagine a sausage in which Walter is walking from point A to point B, a simple action. Then let's imagine the parallel reality in which Walter is walking. Everything is identical as far as the eye can tell, but there is an infinitesimal difference. That difference is that Walter lifts his leg with one atom's breadth less than in this reality. There is a tiny variance to this reality. Here comes the point. Of course, there is not only one. There is an infinity of them. It's not only one log besides the other. It's an infinity of sausages which go like this laterally with each other. Which simply says, when you go in these alternate realities, at some distance, the difference becomes big. Like if you see Walter on this direction, in time, at the age of 5 and at the age of 10, you say, my God, Walter, how much you have grown up. You are a big boy now. If you go this way much enough, then you will start seeing differences. Like... Here, Walter is one atom's breadth taller. Here, atom here, Walter is two centimeters taller. Here, Walter is ten centimeters taller. Here, if you go far enough, you find the universe in which Walter is six meters tall. Therefore, basically, it has been determined, these calculations in time determine that there is any alternative. Because if you start thinking like this, you say, wait a second. There is a universe in which Walter puts his leg lower, 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 lower. How low can it go? It can go as low as it touches the ground. When it touches the ground, then Walter stumbles and falls down. That means if you go in the alternatives of the reality in time, now we are talking about Vishuddha Chakra, therefore we are moving on alternate realities. Then we are finding an alternative where Walter falls down. We are finding an alternative. Let's say we don't care about this, we go in another direction. No, we don't care about the movement of the leg of Walter. We care about the height of Walter. Then we can find the universe where Walter is really, really tall. We can find the universe in which Walter's IQ is bigger, smaller. We can find the universe in which Walter's wisdom is bigger. If you go far enough, you can find, for example, a universe where Walter is a Buddha, is enlightened. 
there is a direction in which Walter's nose is longer and longer until it can be a Pinocchio-like nose. There can be a direction in which exactly like in a computer morphism that you see in special effects in the last 10, 20 years in the cinema movies, Walter's face turns into the face of a dog. There is a universe where Walter from this universe is a dog in this universe. It, every alternative is possible. Every alternative starting from the variance of every atom, an elementary particle, which means it's like in this universe there exists not a universe. There exists a myriad, an infinity of universes which contain all the possible versions. For a mysterious reason, we think and we perceive like we are in this universe. People say, Swami, this is speculation. <coughs> I am not 10 centimeters taller. My IQ is not with 50 points higher. I am not enlightened. Therefore, this is... <coughs> why, why am I then stuck on this reality? If it's true that in this universe there exists potentially an infinity of alternatives and there exists a universe in which I'm happier, there exists a universe in which I'm wealthier, there exists a universe in which I'm taller, there exists a universe in which I'm enlightened, then why am I in this universe? What highlights for me that out of all these infinity alternatives I have selected this one? Because some people can say actually my life sucks. And I wouldn't like to be in this alternative of the reality. For you, this for the time being sounds, because so I speak about the fifth dimension and the sixth dimension together now. Because it doesn't matter if it's on this side or on this side. All of it just means alternatives, round, round alternatives to this sausage. Many of you can consider that that's just a mental speculation, an intellectual thing. But you will find out that not only that there is disturbing evidence that things might be so, but also that for some yogis this was a living reality. For example, the 16th Karmapa of the Tibetan Buddhism, this big corpulent yogi who passed away in 1980-something of cancer, was considered unanimously by his contemporaries as having been one of the biggest Tibetan yogis of his generation. This 16th Karmapa, here is one of the wild stories which is reported because some Westerners already came in his presence in those years and some wild stories emerged. You can say, okay, maybe the man was demented or severely mentally deranged because this kind, but actually he was a very noble human being and he did not give any sign of mental disease in any way. The Karmapa, the 16th Karmapa, was sitting with a group of disciples, Tibetan and Westerns, and suddenly, in the middle of the whole thing, he started laughing uproariously. And everybody is like, did we miss the joke? Was there something happening? Then somebody asked him, Karmapa, why are you laughing? And Karmapa gave the following answer to your evaluation. Karmapa said, while you are fiddling around here, my consciousness was projected simultaneously in about 10,000 parallel universes, alternative realities. And in one of those, the Karmapa from that universe slid on something like a banana peel 
and felt like a Charlie Chaplin movie in a very ridiculous way. And I simply couldn't stop myself from laughing at the ridiculousness of the situation. This man, while he was apparently sitting with you and I in a room, his mind was perceiving thousands of possible other parallel universes in which it's the same actors or different, changed completely, completely different circumstances, like other alternatives of this reality are possible. If you are going to think a little bit, you are going to see that there are events in spirituality and in history <coughs> which contradict this, which, which show, which contradict the solidity of this reality. Like people often speak about the, let's say, the miracles of Jesus. But actually I don't know if you realize that if they are true, and we have all the reasons to believe that they could be true, the miracles or some of the miracles ascribed to one like Jesus, not to mention others who have done stupendous acts as well, they cannot be explained in this reality, in this sausage. They automatically mean a change of track. And nobody noticed it, but it still happened. It was done, and it was done by Jesus, by one man. Like Jesus takes... The one of the stories, Jesus takes a man who is on a stretcher, paralyzed. You probably have seen people suffering from polio or some other nervous muscular dystrophy disorders which are paralyzed since childhood. And you know that they are terribly skinny and very distorted, very deformed. And Jesus is coming to this man and because he is pissed off by some people, he says, you don't think I can do this? And then he says, look, another one here. And he takes this man and he says, now stand up, take your stretcher and go home. And in a matter of seconds, that man stands up to the amazement of the crowd, starts walking and goes home. I don't know if you realize, because everybody thinks, oh, Jesus was a great healer and he had a great energy and he came like uh, Darth Vader, you know, like this guy in Star Wars who can make blue flames out of his fingers. And he came to this guy and zapped him and said, now you are healthy, go home. This is a completely like, even if Jesus would have fixed this man's nervous system, this man didn't have muscles. He was paralyzed on a stretcher since childhood. Even if Jesus fixed him, then this man needed physiotherapy for six months. You go with your arm in plaster and cast, and after six months you need to do physiotherapy and your muscles are atrophied and you can't move. A man who has been paralyzed for 30 years cannot move, even if you fix his nervous system, because he doesn't have the muscles, which means that this man suddenly had muscles which means extra kilos in the body. It's a completely different body. Not only that, but actually when you were a baby, it took you six months to learn to walk and for your brain to learn the sense of balance. So you walk. Even if you give to a man the new nerves and new muscles, he didn't learn how to walk. So he cannot just stand up and walk because his brain doesn't have that skill in it. According to the story, this man stood up, took the stretcher and walked to the amazement of the others. This does not mean giving energy. This simply means changing the reality. It's like shifting channels in a television. 
Now it's like this, click from my Ajna Chakra, and now it's like that. It's a new world. It's a brave new world. Jesus basically shifted track to another sausage in which everyone else and everything else was just the same, exception made this one man who was new. Of course, ne nobody could notice. Like this is something which happens at such a level that nobody could say, wait a second, it's like the whole room shuddered and I think Jesus just shifted sausage here. Nobody is aware that this is happening because it's an act of consciousness which happens at a much deeper level than the perception of people, exactly as the bindu keeps creating this universe and we don't see it because it flickers at a way too high speed for any human sense organ to perceive that. Therefore, realize that it is possible that actually the reality itself changes. It's not only about linear things that from one second to the next I give some energy, something happens. Actually, the reality can be different from a very, very high level. The yogis have defined thousands of years ago at the time of Patanjali already, they have defined the so-called great, the eight great Mahasiddhis, the greatest paranormal powers of the mind. And don't think that they are an abstraction. Ramakrishna in the 19th century told to his disciple Vivekananda of India, he said, Vivekananda, I've got here, I've stumbled over the eight Mahasiddhis and I'm prepared to give them to you, should you want them. I'll simply pass them on to you. Like tomorrow morning you'll wake up endowed with some powers of the mind that you never even dreamed that they exist. These Mahasiddhis are completely inconceivable. When any one of you will read, study about them, you will see that it's, there are some things in which you can spin a galaxy on your finger. They represent a power which is way, way, way bigger. Like almost nobody used such things on the face of the earth. In the stories of the 84 Mahasiddhas, or maybe 64, who created the Buddhist Himalayan Tibetan tradition, those who crossed Buddhism and yoga from India to Tibet, there is one of the Mahasiddhas who created the following event. Some local king was arrogant, and this yogi felt that it was his dharma to teach him a lesson for the increase of the faith of him and all the people around. So he did a magic act where he put this dagger, he had a magic Tibetan dagger, he put it in the ground and says the story, these are the blue annals which have been translated in European languages already, so they are supposed to be historical accounts, they are like chronicles, and they said for a few days the sun stopped. Imagine that we are at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and suddenly you notice with amazement that the sun doesn't move. It doesn't set. Two hours pass and the sun is still there. And eventually it started getting bitter because if at that, in those places in India, even if it's high in the mountains, if the sun is not setting, the rivers start boiling and drying up. You are in a tropical latitude and you can't live. Night is very necessary. So this whole place started going burned out. And the people went to the king and said, please satisfy this guy because we are dying here. This guy is a madman. For three days and three nights, the sun stopped. Now be smart. 
the sun cannot really stop. I mean, you can either suspect that these people were hypnotized, a million people over a hundred kilometers were somehow hypnotized, because the sun, if the sun stops, at least two other things should be valid. They should have noticed it in Europe and in China, and somebody should have written in a chronicle, we don't know what happened in the year 852, but for three days the sun didn't set, didn't rise, probably some crazy yogi in Tibet did something. And the second thing is that it for the sun to apparently stop, it means that the earth should stop spinning. But if the earth stops spinning, it goes red hot, and we get the biggest geological cataclysm since the creation of the earth until today, not to mention that the oceans will flood the land and everything will go. Nothing like this happened. How was it possible for a man, what kind of mind should someone have to create 100 kilometers left and right the impression that the sun is not setting? Like creating a bubble, a virtual reality, a part of the universe where the usual laws of physics and the so-called reality is like the matrix. You can make some things which look completely different. That's why I'm telling you all these stories to show that truly in the existence of humanity, some of these things have been allusively mentioned. When you read Milarepa, when you read Saint Mark of Ethiopia and other mystics, you find out exactly this sorts of changing the reality. What is important is to understand this. The tantric meditators realized that there is not a universe but an infinity of universes. Even in Kashmiri Shaivism, the texts of Kashmiri Shaivism say, glory to Shiva who flashes forth a myriads of universes, creates them, maintains them and dissolves them. Like Kashmiri Shaivistic Tantric texts, they don't say there is a universe. They say there, is an in, there exists an infinity of universes. And then many people will say, but why are we in this one? How can I change it? Here is another idea which disturbs, because many people think that the four-dimensional thing is big. No, the four-dimensional thing is trite. We all live in the four dimensions. We all have that continuum. The, the interesting thing starts when you go to the fifth and the sixth, because then there start the alternatives to it. For example, if somebody reaches enlightenment, what's the definition of enlightenment? It's a state in which one reaches eternity. But wait a second. Then people say, we celebrate the anniversary of Buddha's enlightenment, usually somewhere in April or in May. There is the major Vesak. It's the Buddha Jayanti or whatever, the Buddha Enlightenment Day. It's one of the big Buddhist festivals, somewhere in April, May, June, I forgot. One of those, if I remember correctly, in late April, early May, when the full moon fits with it. So you'd say Buddha became enlightened on the 23rd of April. And from the 23rd of April, 2,500 years ago, he kept on being enlightened, and he's still enlightened today, wherever he is, and he shall be enlightened till the end of the universe, because Buddha has reached nirvana, and thus he has reached immortality. You know what the flow of this image, this is the way you explain to limited minds, because limited minds need a fairy tale, need a story. <clears throat> the 
flow of this image is that if Buddha started being enlightened on the 23rd of April, then he shall stop being enlightened at some time. Because a simple law of metaphysics says everything which has a beginning shall have an end. Therefore, enlightenment by definition cannot have a beginning. In the moment when you reach enlightenment, you realize that you have been there since the beginning of the world. That's why one like Jesus says, I'm God. I have, been, I have created this universe. I have created this solar system and this planet. I have been here. It's not now that I started realizing. That's the limited story. But the story from the standpoint of consciousness is that enlightenment cannot have a beginning because then it is doomed to have an end as well. Thus, realize that in the moment when any person in this world reaches enlightenment, what is happening is that they, together with the rest of the planet, they shift to another channel. Of course, people always think selfishly and they say, if I would have the power to change the reality and I could make myself be ultra rich and live in a palace and have this and have that and have this and do that and so on, if everybody would have that power, everybody would shift the reality like crazy. It would be like 50 times per second people would press the button, the remote control and shift to some reality where they want to go. And if you have a hundred such jokers with remote controls in their hands, we would live in one of the most confusing things which is ever possible. But of course you realize that those that have that consciousness, they say like Jesus, may thy will be done. That means the universe is the way it is because of a divine condition. It's like you can call it in Christianity, God wants it like this. And therefore one like Jesus or one like Rumi or one like Ramakrishna, they wouldn't start changing it. They wouldn't play smart because they would simply say, God, if you want it to be like this, I am with you. I shoulder this reality. I'm not going to fiddle too much with it. Exception made when some major miracle is required for people's awakening or something. And then it's divine. Like Jesus says it clearly in the end of his life. I did not come to show you my things. I came to show you those things which my Father in heaven sent me to show you. Like the miracles which Jesus did were not spontaneous, maverick, crazy stuff, which he just did because he was in the mood. He felt that God wanted those things done, and therefore Jesus didn't do anything from himself as a separate individual. That's why it's very difficult to understand this power or this flabbergasting level of consciousness where one could change sausage, where one could highlight a different reality. Yes, it is allowed for you in some situations to change it. For example, another one of the Mahasiddhas was having his arms and legs cut off by robbers, by thieves. And the history tells us that he did 12 years of pranayama and other yoga methods until he got the paranormal power to rematerialize a new body. And he simply rematerialized his arms and legs and became an apparently, that's the diamond body, the rainbow body. This is exactly a new sausage. It doesn't happen in physics. 
It doesn't happen in biology. That's why many people say that's a bit too much to believe. It's too much to believe because it comes from Vishuddha and especially Ajna. It represents another set of realities that's not done mechanically, linearly, like I do pranayama and every day my arm is growing one centimeter and if I do pranayama for two years it shall be regenerated like a lizard's tail. It's not like that. This man simply got it directly. He reached to a turning point where his mind could influence the reality, the fabric, the warp of the reality. Like now, it's a new world. It's a world I can recreate the world, both in the microcosm and in the macrocosm. This vision of the world that there are three dimensions in space and three dimensions in time, which correspond to Anahata, Vishuddha, and Ajna. That is why Ajna, the third eye, is called the command center. It's the one which commands over all the rest of the universe. And there are yogis who say, why work on Anahata or on Manipura when you can open your Ajna and with Ajna you can open any other chakra. Any other. The Ajna is the command center. And in Ajna there result the eight Mahasiddhis and therefore a sort of almightiness, a sort of omnipotence where everything becomes possible. Therefore, what I'm saying here in this understanding is not only understanding this like rising along the chakras, rising along the levels of consciousness, you start understanding time, then you start understanding alternate realities, but try to think what these alternate realities mean. I, for example, can move in an alternate reality where some event, such as my birth date or something, happens later, later, one fraction of a second, later, 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 until I can get to a universe where I'm born a hundred years later. Then do I live in the 21st century or do I live in the 22nd century? I can move like this, right? There can be a difference like this between the different sausages, not only strictly horizontal. It's a composite thing, right? And then, am I a person of the future? Can I maybe influence my past? What if I am this in this universe? And now let's make an experiment. From this universe, I can also come back to this one. There is a continuity. I can flip to one and flip back. What then it means I can move in my past? Yogis have demonstrated that it is possible even to change your past. And that's possible, first of all, psychologically, such as by healing the traumas, healing the things of the past, purifying your mind, putting the proper ideas. But actually, it is possible at a total metaphysical level. People always say, what's past is past. Not in a multidimensional universe. In a multidimensional universe, what's past is here. Remember that even when you work on Vishuddha Chakra in the shoulder stand in Sarvangasana, your yoga teacher tells you the incomprehensible little sentence, meditate upon past, present and future being a single one duration. Outside of time there is no past, there is no present, there is no future, there is a continuum of time and it makes no difference. It's exactly like you try to say this part of the ocean of the sea, when I go in the sea, it's in the past, and this is in present, and this is in the future. 
But the water from the ocean is not separate. You can swim from this to this and back to this. And the water keeps mingling and mixing. There is a continuum. There are no walls which separate the past, the present, and the future. And that is why it is possible to give messages or knowledge back in time. People are sometimes having déjà vu, and they say, I know this, but I don't know when it happened, and logically it couldn't have happened. It's like a recessive information which comes from the future, but I have never been in that future. Then how does this information come to me and all that? Try to think about another thing, which is in terms of Maya. So many traditions speak about Maya, the illusion that things are not what they seem to be. <clears throat> but for example, if I am going from this universe through a morphism and I represent something else in this universe, then who am I? Am I a man or a dog or a Buddha? People will say, yeah, but that applies in different universes. Then try to imagine the following thing. I move from this sausage to this sausage and here I am something else. And then from this sausage I find a way, a line, whatever convoluted, to come back to this one through another transformation. And therefore I'm living from here as a man and I'm here still a man but five centimeters taller. And I'm coming back through another funny line and I'm back here and I'm a dog. Or I'm you. Or someone else. That simply says, wait a second. It means this demonstrates immediately, if you analyze the universe in terms of the timelines, <coughs> that this, this statement, which many people take poetically, philosophically, or abstractly, that we are, we are all one is actually literally true. It's not true only metaphorically. We are one. Vedanta says that the same Bindu, which is Brahman, the absolute consciousness, makes us all. We are drawings drawn by one. There is only one cosmic person. Exactly the same thing is said by Kashmiri Shaivism. Kashmiri Shaivism says, glory to Shiva, the universal actor that plays all the roles in the universe. Which means, I am Shiva, you are Shiva, everything and everyone is Shiva. There is nothing or no one which is not Shiva. There is even the title of a book of Swami Muktananda, which is called exactly that. There is nothing which is not Shiva. Therefore, what I'm trying to say here is, in the moment when you start studying the warp, the connectedness between the different universes, you start realizing that everything is interconnected and I, this thing brings us to the level number seven, to the level of Bindu or of the Shiva consciousness, to the level of Sahasrara, which says, above those six dimensions, three of time and three of space, which are the six chakras, there exists something which is the common denominator. There is this thing which is everything, which is stars and trees and people and dogs and planets and atoms. I am an atom. I am a star. I am the cosmic consciousness. I am everything 
at that level. Of course, I don't feel like I am that at the level of the limited mind and at the level of a limited consciousness and the ego. But the great yogis who reached Ajna and Sahasrara, they suddenly had the puzzling perception that I am everything, that indeed we are one. Jesus, although he manages to behave as a separate individual in the world, says, you have healed me, you have given me food, you have given me water, and you are going to say, when? And I tell you, if you did this to the least of my brethren, to me, you did it. Basically, Jesus says, when you feed a hungry man, you feed me, because I am every hungry man. I am all the seven billion people that live on this earth. I am all the spirits from the subtle. I am, because he says, I am God. He says, I and my Father are one and the same. But Jesus is not at all the same who says this. Shankaracharya says, I am Brahman. Abhinava Gupta says, Shivoham, I am Shiva. Al-Halaj says, I am Allah. And the list could continue. Meister Eckhart used the same syntax, although he didn't say it, I am God, but he said it in a tricky way, so he shouldn't be caught by the Inquisition and burned at stake. Others and others. There is a German saint, a lesser-known saint, who lived in the city of Prevorst, and who said, when I experience this state of consciousness, I experience a state of union in which there was absolutely no differentiation. Like, it's not that me and the cosmic consciousness. There is no differentiation. Vedanta says, Tatvamasi, you are that. Thus, this theory of the dimensions is not only an oddity to understand how the space and time are. This also helps us to understand Vishuddha Chakra and the B-dimensional time and to understand Ajna Chakra and the three-dimensional time and therefore all the possibilities and all the timelines. But meditating on this reality from a higher level, this automatically shows that in the moment when we have this multiple realities, everything exists potentially there. We just make to, we have to make it appear. The effort of our consciousness is not just to grow up in linear time that five years from now I'm going to be wiser and stronger or whatever than I am now. It's, the effort is much more radical than this. The effort which is required to go from the finite to the infinite is not an effort which can go linear in time. It's an effort of simply shifting realities. It's about living in a new reality. Again, for a, for a consciousness which does not see this, it can sound impossible. It sounds like it's very confusing. You mean realities can change all the time? Realities do change all the time. But for the person that cannot see it, it won't make any difference. It won't, like you cannot see it or something. And from my standpoint, nothing has changed because I have my belief. The power of Ajna Chakra is sometimes called belief. It's like a complete self-hypnosis. And my belief says, I am this. And I am this 
due to my karma, due to my samskaras, due to all the conditions which made me believe that I am the way I am. And as long as this set of beliefs does not change, I will never change the sausage from my standpoint. Wherever the universe changes, even if Jesus comes and makes a change, Jesus can overpower the faith of the paralyzed man and make him believe himself whole again. And thus there is a new body and a new reality, which for everybody is like, what are we dreaming? What's happening here? Very, very often you see people not, I have known once a yogi who was very strong in his Ajna Chakra and he created a partial phenomenon like this. I have not seen this event, but one of my friends saw it with their own eyes. And there was a girl who was paralyzed in a wheelchair and this yogi just came to her and he said, Bollocks, you are not paralyzed, you can stand, look, stand now. Took her by the hand and she started walking. The parents of this girl who were present in the room, they fell on their knees like they watched a Jesus miracle. This guy made the girl walk twice around the room and said, you are perfectly healthy from now. I have healed you, but you have to do some yoga to maintain this energy which I put in you. So you'll have every day to do and slowly what I put in you will decrease and what you get through your practice will compensate and thus you'll be on your own feet. You will be independent. You don't need me. Would you believe that after two months this girl was back in the wheelchair and she and her parents believed that they had been hypnotized? Of course, they had been hypnotized because they didn't understand what hypnosis is. But in the meaning that this man showed them a different reality, showed them a different alternative of how things could be. He did not feel he had the latitude to completely change it. And he simply wanted to see this woman making her own effort, putting the shoulder into it and bringing her own contribution. Like, do you really want this? Let me see how much you want it. Like, it, it should be like an answer to a prayer. It should be like an answer to a desperate need. If you are desperate, show me that you are desperate. How desperate, really? I mean, do two hours of yoga per day. Are you de desperate to make two hours of yoga per day? Figure out, because this was not a pupil in yoga, educated and understanding. For this girl, it was a sudden process, and she did not find the willpower and the self-discipline to do two hours of yoga per day to make this thing last in her. And she preferred to say, we must have been hypnotized, which of course partly is true, but it's only the other part of the truth is that hypnosis actually works. It does create other mental conditions. That is why realize that the mind is the creator of reality. You have been taught in Shambhavi Mudra that the, you, some yogis consider the whole universe, the Shambhavi Mudra of Shiva, a creation, a mental creation of the cosmic consciousness. Thus, realize that this theory of space and time has a much deeper impact than just a game of understanding space and time because at the higher end, it connects us with everything. It connects the past, the present, and the future. There is no more past and present and the future. There is just the power of now. There is only one universal time. This connects the parallel realities, and because of this, it connects me with everything which exists in this universe, and it connects me with you 
and with everything which exists in this universe. These lines in time, scientists even generated a name for them today. They are called creodes, exactly as in geology and in geodesy, when you draw a map, you are drawing some lines on the map, some curves, which are called geodes or geodetic curves, which are representing some curves where the altitude is the same from the sea level. Exactly as there are geodetic lines, in this universe there are creodes. There are lines of time which connect things. And that's why the tantrics, having seen this thing, that's why they called it tantra. That's why the name was given tantra. Because they noticed that this universe is an interconnectedness of space and time which normally you cannot see. Sometimes people take LSD or whatever they do and they have some sudden vision of something like this and they say, my God, for 15 minutes I was a genius. I could see every, everything was interconnected. And they, in normal consciousness, people don't even know if there is a law of karma. People cannot see even the simple causal relationship between space and time because we don't understand time very much. We, are, we don't even understand the third dimension. We didn't conquer the third dimension 100%. And time is considered by most people to be a very subtle thing. Space, we can see it. S this is space, no? But time, we don't see time unless we look at the clock and we see it ticking and we know the time is passing. But otherwise, there is no way in which we perceive time. So time is more subtle. It's the next level. And in time, we hardly perceive this timeline from past to the future. When the level of consciousness goes to Vishuddha, Ajna, like you are now in this state of vision, it becomes possible for your mind at least to conceive of this parallel. The fact that the time is a space, is a volume, and thus there exist parallel realities in time, and we are connected with all these, and the universe is this very complex reality, which is called Tantra. It's the warp which connects everything with everything. I think the most wonderful outcome of this is this perception that when you understand the space and time, <coughs> you see that all the space and time boil down to one, to that Bindu, to Shiva, as we call <coughs> this oneness, in Tantra. And therefore, then you understand that the space and time are just like an I Ching. They are just like a development of the polarity of yin and yang. And they represent just the variations on a given theme. They represent just the embroidery on the warp of the universe. The warp always remains at this oneness. This is the Tantric meditation about space and time. And the understanding, that's why when you read high-level Tibetan, Kashmirian, or some yogic texts from India, you find references to these multiple universes, to people living simultaneously, to time distortions, to the union of the past, present, and future, to me being you and you being me, that there is something common between you and I, which we call consciousness, pure consciousness, Atman, Brahman, the Shiva consciousness, or whatever you want to call it. There are so many names. 
This is the ultimate effect of it, that the tantrics realize that if you go on the chakras, you finally reach to Sahasrara, to the oneness. Meditating with space and time is a method of realizing oneness, and of course it is a method of realizing enlightenment. For many people, space and time are part of the illusion, they are maya, and they are disconnected from God. But for the tantrics, space is Bhuvaneshwari, time is Kali, and they are not at all disconnected from God. They are just the Shakti side of reality. They are the Prakriti, and they are as divine as the transcendental consciousness is. And that's why here you have an example in which the chakras create a hierarchy, a ladder to God, and rising your consciousness in the understanding of space and time, you finally find yourself face to face with the One. This is how the tantrics have used space and time for understanding, for getting back to the origins, for understanding the structure of reality and the structure of time. That's why there are six chakras plus Sahasrara. Some people come and say, no, there are 11 chakras. Those people don't even realize who invented the chakras and why, because the chakras are not just the invention of a person who was bored one day, and they said, let me make a model of the universe with six chakras and six planes and then a seven on top of them. And somebody says, I can make a model where there are nine chakras. Or That's not accidental. The chakras correspond to these levels of space and time they are not arbitrarily created by somebody out of simple imagination. That is why the tradition takes us on a very clear path and when you develop your mind, when you develop your spiritual vision, your intuition, you are able to connect things in this way. Space and time connect us, especially time, because in space we have the very clear feeling that we are separate by a distance. And that's the illusion of time, the Maya, illustrated by Bhuvaneshwari. But time is covering this thing. Time is breaking this illusion, because in the moment when you go also at the levels of time, then you see that there is always a timeline, a causal, a creode, which connects me with you, with the trees, with the sky, with everything there is. And actually, in reality, there is only one reality. This universe is one, eventually. There is no multiplicity. The six dimensions of time and space are multiplicity. And Bindu, or the crown, the Shiva consciousness, is oneness. That's why the universe is a mixture of oneness and multiplicity symbolized in the Kashmiri Shaivas by a wheel with spokes. The spokes are the different energies and planes of the universe, the different forms of Shakti as differentiated, but in the middle of the wheel there is a hole, a hub. And that hub of the wheel, which is void, which is emptiness, is the pure consciousness of God, the Shiva consciousness, and the wheel can stand together because of the hub because a wheel without a hub is not a wheel anymore. And thus, these meditations are very beautiful 
This is an example of how the tantric tradition found a way to go from manifestation to non-manifestation and back to manifestation. Shiva and Shakti are dancing with each other. There is a continuity. We are not separated from the one and actually we are the one. We conclude this presentation. It is late enough. Let us remain for a while in meditation again to let this <coughs> imagery settle down so that tomorrow you can use some of it. There will be a memory of it, although some aspects will disappear from your consciousness. It's exactly like you had a dream tonight and somehow it fades away as the days will pass. On the contrary, those of you who will work intensively on Vishuddha and Ajna will be able to preserve more and more this. And in your meditation, you will reach more and more at this global, grandiose, gigantic vision of spiritual teacher said you are not a material person having spiritual experiences you are a spiritual being that is now during a material experience our essence is this universal spirit and as the great guru Akhinavagupta of Kashmiri Shaivism says it you are the lord of the universe sunken into oblivion. What we experience now is just a forgetfulness of our true nature, of our universal nature. Lost in the Maya of space and time, in the labyrinth of space and time, which for many people becomes a prison, a labyrinth, an illusion, and for some people it becomes an instrument for liberation and enlightenment and emancipation.
And that will do. With this, we have finished our satsang and presentation of tonight. Thank you all for joining. Namaste.